Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 31st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A terminated salesman with an industrial hernia lost his FIHA claim. Here's what happened in the unpublished decision of Rick Johnson Jr. versus Pacific International Bearing Incorporated. Pacific International Bearing is a small bearing distribution company with six employees in addition to its president, Kevin Sweeney. Pacific's primary business was to market and sell high-precision radial ball bearings to machine tool companies and some medical companies. The plaintiff, Rick Johnson Jr., was hired in January 2006 as an outside salesman. He was paid a base salary and a commission. He did not meet sales performance objectives, and there were early confrontations between Sweeney and Johnson about increasing his sales. The dispute widened to include problems with Johnson taking too much personal time off from work and then challenges to Johnson's integrity about excuses for the time taken off work for personal reasons. In December 2006, Pacific conducted its annual inventory, which involved a physical count of all warehoused products. Johnson testified he was injured doing lifting during the inventory and felt a burning, stabbing pain. According to Johnson, he told Sweeney he was very sore and asked if he could ease up on doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Sweeney worked with Johnson during much of the inventory and saw no indication of pain, discomfort, or limitation on his part. After the inventory, Johnson asked for time off to spend time with a dying uncle in San Diego. He was gone for a week after Christmas for that reason. In February 2007, he took another week, both to visit the same uncle in his last days and, according to an email he sent to Sweeney, to stay for the uncle's funeral. When Johnson returned to work the following week, Sweeney had a conversation with him about the funeral in which Johnson told him his uncle had not yet died. At that point, Sweeney began to question whether he could trust anything Johnson had told him, including Johnson's stated reason for requesting time off after Christmas. In February 2007, Johnson asked Sweeney for a $15,000 increase in his base salary to be offset by changing his commission structure, but Sweeney declined. Later that February, Johnson told Sweeney he had a job offer from his former employer, paying the amount he had requested in a raise, but that he was going to turn the job offer down. Sweeney did not believe Johnson had received the offer and found it interesting that the purported offer was for the same salary Johnson was seeking from Sweeney. Sweeney knew Johnson was being untruthful with him about the offer and considered firing Johnson at that point, but he was close to hiring a general manager and wanted to bring that person in before making the decision to terminate Johnson. In April, Johnson called in sick from a hot dog he had eaten at a baseball game the day before. Sweeney believed Johnson purposefully missed that day of work because it was the start date for the newly hired general manager, Marge Davis. Later in April, Sweeney sent Davis an email copied to Johnson instructing her to go on certain sales calls with Mr. Johnson. 24 minutes later, Johnson sent Sweeney an email claiming he got a hernia back in December when he was taking inventory. Later that day, during a meeting, Sweeney told Johnson things were not working out and fired him on the spot. At trial, Sweeney explained that he fired Johnson because his sales performance was poor and because he was somebody who he did not trust any longer. 
Johnson sued Pacific, alleging violations of FEHA, disability discrimination, failure to make reasonable accommodations, and other related offenses. Johnson lost on all of these claims by way of either court dismissals, motions for non-suit, or jury verdicts on what remained. The Court of Appeal, in the unpublished decision of Rick Johnson Jr. versus Pacific International Bearings Incorporated, sustained the lower court. The decision was based in part upon the substantial evidence standard. After considering all of the evidence in the light most favorable to the prevailing party, the Court of Appeal did not find cause to reverse the trial court. And now our fraud report. A Los Angeles physician who received approximately $30,000 in illegal kickbacks as part of a scheme that defrauded Medicare out of more than $5 million has been sentenced to one year and one day in federal prison. In addition to the prison term, the court ordered Kim to pay about $1 million in restitution to Medicare. 69-year-old Juan Sil Kim, also known as Victoria Kim, pleaded guilty admitting that she fraudulently referred medical, Medicare beneficiaries to Great Care Home Health Incorporated in return for kickbacks. Kim had an arrangement under which she would see but not examine Medicare beneficiaries at Great Care's clinic in the Westlake District of Los Angeles. After meeting with the Medicare beneficiaries after Great Care's normal business hours, Kim wrote referrals for home health care services and received a $100 kickback for each referral. As part of the scheme, Kim also signed off on plans of care for the beneficiaries, falsely representing that the patients were under her care, confined to the home without a willing caregiver, and had a medical necessity for home health services. The scheme targeted elderly, primarily Korean, Medicare beneficiaries. In total, Kim's referrals and referrals from other doctors to great care resulted in more than $5 million in losses to Medicare. Great care was shut down in March of 2011 when special agents with the FBI and the Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General executed a search warrant and seized $1.2 million from great care's bank accounts. Great Care's owner, 50-year-old He Young Moon, who often used the name Angela of Rancho Palos Verdes, and other Great Care employees, including 43-year-old Yi Hei Kim of Fullerton and 68-year-old Hua Jia Kim of Harbor City, have entered guilty pleas and are currently awaiting sentencing. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation is on target for implementation of Senate Bill 863's effective date of January 1, 2013. The division says it is taking a balanced approach that will reflect the bill's intention to balance substantial benefit increases to injured workers with efficiencies and cost savings to employers. Some aspects of SB 863 will become law on January 1, 2013 without any regulatory action. For example, for injuries on or after January 1, 2013, permanent disability indemnity benefits will automatically increase. The new minimum rate will be $160 per week, and the new maximum rate will also increase depending upon the level of disability. For injuries on or after January 1, 2014, the new maximum rate for permanent disability will be $290 per week for all PD levels. For an injury on or after January 1, 2013 that causes the employee's death, 
Reasonable expenses for the employee's burial will increase to $10,000. Other aspects of SB 863 require implementation through regulations. To meet the January 1, 2013 implementation deadline, DWC's legal staff initiated the emergency rulemaking process overseen by the Office of Administrative Law. Regulations required to effectuate the independent medical review process, the independent bill review process, lien activation and lien filing fee payment, qualified medical evaluator changes, supplemental job displacement benefits, and interpreter certifications have been submitted to the Office of Administrative Law for their approval. Each of these emergency regulatory actions will be followed by the full rulemaking process, also overseen by OAL over the next year. For injuries on or after January 1, 2013 and effective July 1, 2013, for all dates of injury, medical treatment disputes will be resolved by physicians through an efficient process known as independent medical review rather than through the often cumbersome and costly adjudication system. If utilization review denies, delays, or modifies a treating physician's request for a specific course of medical treatment for the reason that the treatment is not medically necessary, the injured employee can ask for a review of that decision by IMR conducted by a physician. The physician review will be expeditious and based upon evidence-based standards to ensure that injured employees receive timely and appropriate medical treatment. Medical service billing disputes for dates of service on or after January 1st will be resolved through a non-judicial process of independent bill review. IBR applies to any medical service bill where the fee is determined by a fee schedule adopted by the DWC. If the medical provider disagrees with the amount paid by a claims administrator on a properly documented bill following a second review, he or she can request IBR. Any initial lien for reasonable medical expenses incurred by or on behalf of the injured employee except disputes subject to independent medical review or independent bill review and filed on or after January 1, 2013 is subject to a lien filing fee of $150. For medical treatment expense liens claims filed before January 1, 2013, a $100 lien activation fee must be paid prior to filing a declaration of readiness to proceed to request a lien conference or prior to appearing at a lien conference. If the $100 lien activation fee is not paid by January 1, 2014, the lien claim is dismissed as a matter of law. SB 863 also brings significant changes regarding injured workers' ability to return to work. Newly added Labor Code Section 139.48 creates a $120 million return-to-work fund to be established and administered by the Department of Industrial Relations. The fund will be available to individuals who are injured at work on or after January 1, 2013 and whose PD benefits are disproportionately low in comparison to their earnings. The Department will issue proposed regulations regarding the fund in the near future. The DWC encourages everyone to check the DWC website for frequent updates on SB 863. Once the first parts of the law are implemented on January 1st, the information will reflect the changes and help stakeholders prepare for the next steps in this important reform package. The Division of Workers' Compensation has posted adjustments to the official medical fee schedule. An order adjusted the durable medical equipment, prosthetics, 
orthotics, and supplies section of the OMFS to conform to changes in the Medicare payment system. The update includes all changes identified in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services change request number 8813. This is the first Medicare update for DME POS for the calendar year 2013. Another order amended the pathology and clinical laboratory section of the OMFS. The update includes all changes identified in the CMS and Medicaid Services change request number CR8132. Orders are both effective for services on or after January 1st. The United States Congress passed the Strengthening Medicare and Repaying Taxpayers Act, also known as the SMART Act. Senators Ron Wyden and Rob Portman introduced the legislation in the fall of 2011 and have been leading the bipartisan effort to make the Medicare secondary payer program more efficient and cost-effective to taxpayers. The SMART Act, which gathered 23 co-sponsors during its consideration by the Senate, was passed by the House of Representatives by a margin of 401 to 3 on December 19th. The Senate passed the legislation by unanimous consent. The legislation will significantly improve the efficiency of the current Medicare secondary payer system and speed repayment of amounts owed from Medicare beneficiary claims directly to the Medicare Trust Fund. The SMART Act was estimated by the Congressional Budget Office to save taxpayers $45 million over the next 10 years. The Property Casualty Insurers Association applauded the U.S. Senate for passing this new law. The legislation requires that Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services streamline its process, eliminating the costly delays in settling claims. The WCAB has posted tentative proposed changes to its Rules of Practice and Procedure on its web forum for informal public comment. These changes are largely being proposed in light of Senate Bill 863, although some proposed changes are not strictly related to the new law. The informal public comment period will end at 5 p.m. on Wednesday, January 9, 2013. After the closure of the informal public comment period, the WCAB will take the informal comments into consideration and make any modifications to the tentative proposed regulations that it deems appropriate. Thereafter, the WCAB will submit proposed regulations to the Office of Administrative Law to commence the formal public comment period, culminating in a public hearing. The WCAB encourages all interested members of the workers' compensation community to participate in this important process. The Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation announced the release of a 30-day public comment period on a document and working paper on the impact of experience rating on small employers. The question is, would lowering the threshold for experience rating improve safety? This was prepared by the RAND Corporation for Cheswick. The working paper focuses on the loss experience of small firms in California when they become experience rated and provides insights about the prospect that lowering the threshold for experience rating would have on safety outcomes at these small firms. Experience rating is the common practice in the insurance markets of adjusting premiums to take into account the actual losses of the insured. Insurers apply experience rating as a means of underwriting heterogeneity among policyholders that may be hard or costly to otherwise observe. 
and workers' compensation experience rating is also advanced as a method to reintroduce a stronger financial incentive for firms to prevent losses, an incentive that the loss-spreading effect of insurance tends to weaken. The use of experience rating and workers' compensation is controversial. Some argue that the financial incentives provided by experience rating are an essential incentive for improving workplace safety. Others argue that experience rating has little impact on safety, but causes some employers to suppress legitimate claims, depriving workers of benefits. What is lacking is sufficient evidence on the causal impact of experience rating on outcomes. The current California threshold for mandatory application of experience rating by insurers excludes 80% of employers. Excluded employers are smaller firms whose experience insurers consider too limited to be credibly predictive of future losses. The RAND paper explores in the California context what happens to the loss experience of small firms when they become just large enough to be experience rated for the first time. The study found that those firms which became experience rated had a decline in losses relative to those whose status did not change. Specifically, the workers' compensation losses at firms that became experience rated declined 6% to 9% compared to those that did not. The study found that virtually all of the reduction in losses is due to the reduction in claim frequency and not due to a decline in the average cost per claim. This finding suggests that the changes are a real safety improvement and not artifacts of increased effort to suppress claims. The study concludes that expanding experience rating to more employers would reduce occupational injuries without substantially increasing claim underreporting. However, Rand analyzed the extra cost that a newly experienced rating employer could incur by reporting a claim under the current rules and found a surprisingly big effect. In many cases, the increase in a small employer's premiums triggered by a claim can be substantially greater than the actual cost of the claim. Thus, any extension of experience rating to impact more firms should be mindful of the potential costs that large variants in year-to-year premiums could impose on some employers. Future research should focus on the design of experience rating for smaller employers that retains incentives for safety while limiting large swings in premium costs. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles of Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.